So, just real quickly, um, considering the Sunday after Easter, I think it's important to acknowledge, as I was referencing, the, the sermon last week was fantastic, hit the nail on its head, especially for an Easter Sunday. But what I think is important to also remember in the context of celebrating the resurrection is that this was Jesus coming out of the tomb and meeting with people and spending time with them, 500 witnesses for 40 days, is, is the greatest cosmic I told you so that ever happened. And what we fail to realize sometimes is not only is the resurrection an offering to us of, the, of, of a resurrection and newness in life, the resurrection is pointing back and saying, see what I said is true. And I think it's important to acknowledge that as we get ready to dive into the book of Romans and studying about a new way of life because we have to see it in the authoritative nature you know, that it really is. Now, Jed joked about jumping into Romans 8, and you know, Romans is a building chapter. What you don't know is between services, Jed caught me and was like, Romans? You called Romans the greatest book of the Bible? It's because it's talking about the Old Testament the whole time. If you don't know, Jed is an Old Testament scholar and theologian, knows Hebrew and all of this. And I wanted to make sure I told him, well, I said, I'll say something next service if it'll make you feel better about the fact that Romans is a huge reference to the the totality of the biblical narrative, and particularly the Old Testament. Now, that said, here's the deal. We have to get context. You can't just jump in and preach Romans 6. You can, you can, but it will lose a lot of its weightiness if we jump in and we preach Romans 6 without considering the first five chapters. Now, my goal today and my mission today is, my task is to preach the first five chapters of Romans in like the next 35 or 40 minutes. Now, Here's the deal, and anybody that knows the book of Romans, and I hope that you do, that's not, that's a, it's an impossible task to be any comprehensive at all. In fact, you know, John Piper, I think, spent like four or five years preaching the first five chapters of Romans every single Sunday. That's not an exaggeration. Look it up. Um, however, let me just say this right off the bat. You, you need to read the book of Romans and study it. You don't need to just hear me talk about it or Zach. You need to read the book yourself. You need to read the notes from good commentary. You need to study it. You need to study Romans. Every Christian should study Romans. It'll change your life. It's not my opinion. It's changed a lot of people's lives, people that have had a profound impact on the church and where the church stands today. Augustine, it was the book of Romans. It was the book of Romans that converted Augustine. Martin Luther. Um, fast forward, John Wesley. Fast forward a little further, John Piper. These are all people that, if the Lord doesn't come back 500 years from now, will there all be giants in the faith and what happened in Christianity? And the book of Romans had a lot to do with it. And I, I won't belabor this too long, but I'm telling you, and I'm not saying this as like a you ought to. I'm telling you, as a pastor and somebody that loves you, you need to read the book of Romans if you haven't. You need to study it. And you need to read all 16 chapters, and you need to read it in little chunks every single morning, and it will, it will change your life. It will change your life. I can promise you that. So, I say all that to hopefully provide a little bit of this understanding. It is impossible for me to do real justice to five books of Romans in a few minutes. It is impossible. What I can do, what I hope to do today, is draw out the major themes so that this idea of walking in a new way of life has a reason. Because if we don't do that, then all we're doing is being Pharisees. Okay, now, I say this because, and let me just get a little context. Paul's writing this letter to Rome. He's not been there one of Paul's disciples planted the church at Rome, or one of Paul's disciples' disciples planted the church at Rome. Paul wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to Rome on the way. He just hasn't had a chance to get there yet. It's his third missionary journey when he's writing this, and he wouldn't get the opportunity until he went there to die. 
And so he's writing this letter to them, and it's a synopsis of the totality of the Christian faith. He doesn't get into like Christology. He doesn't get deep into some of those things, but he 100% lays out a narrative and an understanding through this about what has happened and why it matters. And guys, I'm here to tell you, you cannot, you cannot live in a new way of life. This sermon series is a waste of time without the first five chapters of Romans. I'll put it that way. So we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to read through. Now, why am I saying that? If you recall last week, if you were here for Easter, Zach was talking about the two ditches, right? We all have, and there's like gnomism and antinomianism. Now, people sitting in here, sometimes when you hear ism, like you like, I don't like hearing about isms in the church. Well, let me just tell you, everybody is an ism in one way or another, okay? If you don't like isms, then you're an anti-ismism. And that's all you are. Everybody, these are just ways to capture a school of thought or an idea or a concept about something, and we want to adhere to those things. It's just a word to capture that idea. When Zach was talking last week, nomism is the idea, or nomism is the idea that we are the ditch of, le of, of legalism, that we're going to live in accordance with the law, and that is going to serve our salvation. Antinomianism is we have been saved by grace, so we can do whatever we want. And it's, it's a perversion of grace, as Jude calls it, into like, I can do what I want because I'm, I'm saved. These are two ditches that the Christian spends their life navigating between. Now, what I want to tell you, and just to use a simple illustration, um, I took Ainsley to hear Ben Folds last night. I'm a big Ben Folds 5 fan. doesn't matter. Ainsley's become one. She plays the piano. It's fun. Took her in. He's playing with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. Ainsley drove with her permit, with me in the car, obviously, from here to, all the way to downtown Denver, down I-25, okay? Now, I was just, you think you're scared at the thought of it, imagine being in the passenger seat. Now, she's a great driver. She, Ainsley's a great driver. But the reason I say this is, I don't, when I'm riding with Ainsley, I am not saying, don't go in that shoulder, don't go in the median, don't go in that ditch. Don't. What am I saying? Keep your eyes on the road. Look as far down the road as you can. And I even find myself like leaning back and trying to look and just see what she's looking at. Is she, is she looking around? I mean, that's how I drive, especially in the front range. I'm like, Long's Peak looks beautiful today. Oh, oh, I'm in another lane. This is, this is my life. So I get it. But what I'm saying is, look ahead. Are you staring at the car right in front of you? Don't do that. Try, try to look down the road a ways, right? I think when it comes to trying to walk in a new way of life, it is not about avoiding the ditches, which Zach talked a lot about, as much as it's staying in the center of the road in order to avoid the ditches. So that's why I think it's necessary that we get in to Romans, um, to Romans 1 through 5. I'll just, I'm going to say this one more time. I'm not going to belabor it. If, if, if you hear nothing I say today, but you start reading Romans tomorrow at the beginning, then this will be, have been an effective Sunday morning as far as I'm concerned. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. I grew up in the 80s. If anybody else grew up in the 80s, I had three favorite cars. It was a Lamborghini Countach, it was a Ferrari Testarossa, and it was a Porsche 911 Turbo, okay? And I knew everything about these cars because I was obsessed with them. Posters around my walls, and I'm sure somebody knows. If you guys are like, Testarossa, don't worry about it. It's still the coolest car ever. So I, I, had a, I, I knew everything about these cars. I studied them. I knew all of their specs. I knew everything. I was like a guru, but I'd never ridden in one. I was 17 years old, and Matt Frank, one of my friend's dads, who was a doctor in Lexington, bought a Porsche 911 Turbo. And then he's like, do you want to go for a ride? And I was like, yes, I do. And this guy knew how to drive it, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, I remember it to this day, the feeling of being pressed in the seat. It was so awesome. It was so fast. Now, I say that to say I can know everything about that car, and that's how a lot of us treat 
the theological truths that the book of Romans teaches. We know the truths. We've read things. We've heard pastors talk about it. But we've never gotten in it ourselves and felt what it feels like to study Romans deeply. And I'm telling you again today, riding in that Porsche 911 twin turbo was a whole lot different than the culmination of all of the specs that I knew about it. The book of Romans is the same thing. Okay, I will say it before you now. It's the greatest book, the greatest letter ever written. It's the greatest book of the Bible. Um, that can be my opinion, but I think that if you were to read it, you will see that truth claim made real. Okay, so this morning, simple big truth here. Walking in a new way of life is impossible without a deep understanding of the old way of life. It's going to be a little heavy today, and it's going to be a lot. It's a good thing that I speak like 10,000 words a minute. It's going it's to serve this little service well, because we're going to cover a lot of information really quickly. And I wanna, this is the last time I say it, because I don't want to be redundant. Some of you who know the book of Romans are probably thinking, he's going to have to skip so much. And you're right. You're right. I am going to have to skip so much. There are so many deep truths. Again, I don't want to be redundant. But I've got, I'm going to hit the main logical theme that Paul is walking through to lead us to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to try to do that with five big ideas or points. And here are my five points. I'm just going to read them all to you really quickly, and then we're going to go to point one. Number one, that the truth of God's divinity and power is known and suppressed by all people. Number two, that the law of God is known and willfully transgressed by all people. Now, you're probably thinking, is he going to be able to use that same rhythmic pattern for every one of these? No, I wish. I tried. I couldn't put it together. Number three, all people are incapable, and of, incapable of and ultimately unconcerned with self-salvation. Number four, Jesus died for God and for you. And number five, by faith, not works, we receive grace and are counted righteous in Christ Jesus. So those are my five big ideas. Let's go right to the first, the first one there. The truth of God's divinity and power is known and suppressed by all people. Now, the reason I tag this all people expression on there is because one of the main themes that Paul is working out in the first eight chapters of Romans is that the Jews and the Gentiles are equally in this position not just the Jews. And so when I'm saying all people, I'm, I'm trying to capture one of the truth, one of the points that he's making throughout, which is this isn't just the Jews, and we'll come back to that, okay? But I want, I want to make sure you understand that's why. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start in verse 18 of chapter 1. Please get your Bible out or open it on your phone or whatever you have to follow along with me. If possible, I would appreciate that so you can see the words yourself. In 1 through 17, Paul is simply introducing himself. He's acknowledging that he was given grace to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed of preaching this gospel. And he's, he's rolling in in this way, and then he's going to have to break down what this means and why it matters. Because it's insufficient to say, I'm here to preach the gospel and then jump ahead to what the gospel is, because we need the bad news. Okay? So, starting in 18... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, right off the bat here, there's a couple of things that we have to acknowledge. And here's my goal today. My goal today is to paint the clearest picture I possibly can in a few minutes 
of the old way of life so that we have a motivation, an appropriate motivation for a new way of life. First of all, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as an atheist. There are people who profess to be atheists, but they are not atheists. How do we know that? Well, we see in Scripture that God has revealed himself in nature, his eternal power and his divine nature, to everyone. Every single person has had this made known to them. So they are without excuse, and then it is suppressed. So atheists are merely people who suppress it in such a way as to turn around and say, I don't believe in God, but it's a false statement. In fact, um, I've heard a lot of people talk about how easy it is in Christian evangelism to move people from being atheist to agnostic by simply saying, so you know with certainty there's the absence of God, or you don't believe there is? And as soon as they say, well, I don't know for sure, they just became agnostic. They're not atheist, okay? Simple thing. However, there's a truth here that we have, to, we have to uncover. We have bought the idea that some people just simply don't believe in God because they don't know that he exists. It's untrue. Let's go to the most famous or prominent atheist, Richard Dawkins, just for a second. Richard Dawkins is kind of the face of new atheism. At least he was. Now he's kind of getting washed up and people don't care about him anymore. But here's what he said. I watched this interview. I think it was with Brian Green, this astrophysicist, and they were sitting there together. This was a few years ago, and the, the interviewer asked, so you know there is no God? And Richard Dawkins sat there, and he thought about it, and he said, well, if I were to say that there could be a God, I would undermine all of the work we're doing in, in evolutionary biology. I want you to hear what he said. It, I don't want to undermine my work, so just to say that would undermine my work, right? That's absurd. That is clearly evidence of the fact that even Richard Dawkins, the atheist, is clearly an agnostic and he just doesn't know, but he's unwilling to say it because he's, first of all, made a living off of saying it and it would undermine his work. Now, I think it's important that we realize that we don't want to resort to thinking that this is a Richard Dawkins problem because this is not a Richard Dawkins problem. This is every single human that walked the earth problem because what, God, what, he is, what Paul is saying here to us and we have is that God has made himself clearly perceivable all people, and that all people have seen this truth and suppressed it. That truth being the existence of God. We're not going to get into immediate versus immediate revelation. That's a different topic. We're not going to get into revelation that's general versus specific. We're not going to get into those things. We're just talking about this clear concept. God exists. He's made the truth of his existence known, and all people have known it and then suppressed that truth. They've packed it down. They've stuffed it away. But it goes worse than that, because then what we see at the remainder of this chapter is that they have replaced, they have replaced that truth with something else. There is this expression that drives me nuts. You know, they have a God-sized hole in their heart. That's true, but that hole is filled with something other than God. It's not this empty space. There are not people walking around with this empty hole, this, this absence of a knowledge of God. They have filled that with, with something else, recreation or their job or their fatherhood or even good things. They've replaced it. And I think that matters for us because we like to think that there is going to be somebody that shows up before God and says, I didn't know about you on Judgment Day. And he's going to be like, wrong. Not only did you know. How clear does this have to be? And you suppressed it, and then it got worse. No honor and no thanks. It was replaced. And this is the state of mankind in Romans chapter 1. We call it idolatry, you call it whatever you want, but it is taking what God has offered us that we can clearly see him in every one of us, not just Richard Dawkins, every one of us sitting here 
has acknowledged it, suppressed it, and replaced it. And I'm going to be real candid with you. What most of us have replaced it with, in fact, I would say all of us, is our self. We've become self-gods, and we want to be the rulers of our destiny, and we want to determine our path, and we want to be in control. And autonomy in the United States of America is the highest virtue, and the Lord is saying, that's my spot. So this is where we are. So then what does God do? He says, but I love you anyways. Nope, that's not what he does. In the remainder of chapter 1, it says, and this is some of the most powerful texts in all of Scripture, I believe, it says God turned him over. And listen, I'm not going to get into the remainder of chapter 1, but I, I recommend that you do and you see what it says so that you have a right understanding of the way that God treats rebellion. He says this, go ahead, go ahead. And it says three times in the following couple of passages, God turned him over to read what it says. God turned him over to. God turned him over to. And now we're thinking, that doesn't sound very loving. God turns people over in their sin, to which God, and I will say on his behalf, says to you, you, you're going to tell me what's, so let me get this straight. I've made myself clearly knowable and perceivable, and you're going to tell me I'm unloving after you dishonored me, suppressed the truth of me, replaced it with something else. You're going to tell me what's loving. <laughs> so, we have this tendency that now we're back in our spot of being God and we're going to judge him. Right? Now, this is the part of this little sermon where I sound real like fire and brimstone, whatever. And you know why? Because the Bible says it very, very explicitly. And the Bible does not beat around the bush. And there is no aspect of Paul's writing here that brings one ounce of comfort. And we get uncomfortable with that in the church. We're waiting for this, I'm a child of God. You know, I, I didn't say this last period, last service, but I always think about this day when Jude comes out of Sunday school class with this little paper, and it says, um, I am a, and the blank said, sinner. And I thought, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome, because if this kid grows up thinking he's a child of God from the time he's a little boy, and he never understands he's a sinner first, and God made him a child of God, as it says in John 12 and 13, then it's, not gonna, it's never going to make sense. He's going to live a little Pharisee life. Right? So I think it's, and I, I say that to say we gotta, if we don't have that realization first, and Paul's recognizing that and he's setting the stage, then what comes after it does not have its value. So here's the question, and it's one of the most common questions I got when I was a high school principal from students. One student specifically always asked me the same country, and he was obsessed with it. And he'd say, So you're telling me the people on North Sentinel Island, don't look it up on Google Maps right now, do it later, but it's pretty interesting. The people on North Sentinel Island, this little hole in the wall island off the coast of India, They've never heard, nobody has reached this island. In fact, three or four years ago, a very zealous young Christian man who loved Jesus, loved him, I mean, and was determined, I'm going to be the person that reaches this country. He gets his kayak and a soccer ball and a Bible, and he paddles over to this island, and before he can say a word, he gets arrowed to death, literally, by the people who live on this island. It's a two-square-mile island, and it is, he gets killed. He's a martyr for Jesus right there. It was not probably the smartest move, but his heart was zealous for the Lord and that they would know the Lord because they don't know the Lord. And the question becomes, well, if they don't know the Lord and they've never heard, he can hold them accountable? He said, if, they, if there are good people there and they're, they're, they're innocent, they haven't heard this, they don't know what sin is, they're held accountable? They, they would still go to hell even though they've never heard about Jesus? To which I said, no, they wouldn't. No, innocent, good people on that island will go straight to heaven. They don't need to hear about Jesus. The problem is that person doesn't exist. 
There is no such thing as the good, innocent person on North Sentinel Island. There's no such thing as a good, innocent person sitting in Overland Church right now. The, the person doesn't exist. So let's not fool ourselves. So how does Paul reconcile this, knowing that the North Sentinel Island question is going to be the question, what does he say? Well, here's what he says. Move forward with me. We're going just a little bit forward into chapter 2. Now, what we're skipping over here is a, in the end of chapter 1 is Paul talking about the Lord giving him over. Okay, that's, that's the part that we're kind of jumping over and how he responds to the sin of man. And now we're in chapter 2, and we're going to jump a little bit ahead to verse 12. And the reason is, what I'm skipping over is basically Paul showing that the Pharisees aren't saved because of their obedience to the law, because they're hypocrites. And then he goes to here, because he knows the question is going to be, well, what about the people who aren't Israelites or Jews? They didn't get the Ten Commandments. Here's what he says. 2 verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying the people who did not get the Ten Commandments are without excuse as well. Now let me, say, let me speak to this idea of the law for just a second. Because I th- this is a pretty profound thing that I learned just recently and I had not considered it before. The Israelites, the, they, they saw the Ten Commandments as a grace of God. And you're like, what? I thought grace was the opposite. No, no, hear me out for a second. In the, in, in, the, in the Eastern world, in the world in general, the God of people had not told them how to live. And I, this still exists today. This isn't, an, this isn't just merely antiquity. This exists today. When, when Brooke and I were over in Thailand a few years ago, one of the things that really struck us that now I put together better was that these people had this, these animist religions. They had like spirit houses in Thailand because they're Buddhists and, and there's like Hinduism worked in. There's some merging of some of those things and they are trusting this idea from this that the spirit and the measure of whether they've done the right thing or not is the quality of their life and whether or not they seem to be in favor with this god or out of favor with him by virtue of what their life looks like what caste they're in what their crop growth looks like all of these things and then the god of the bible comes along and says live this way and it's like ah. Oh, The Israelites saw that as, oh, freedom. Freedom from the uncertainty about what the expectation is. Okay, so they have this law, and they transgress it. And the question becomes, well, what about the people that don't have the law? And he says, everybody's got the moral law of God written on their heart. So when you see this statement, this is not the Ten Commandments. The people on North Sentinel Island don't have it. There are people in Fort Collins, Colorado, who've not seen the Ten Commandments, have not heard them taught, whatever it may be. I'm talking about the morality of God, and here's how it's evident, he says, in a couple of ways. Number one, the fact that anything good happens is evidence of God's common grace. Anything good. The the professing atheist who gives to charity is evidence of a moral good written on the heart. There is a compulsion inside of us to do that which is right. The fact that the compulsion exists is evidence. Now, The other side of this that he's making clear that I think is important is the fact that not doing it, what we believe to be right, also reveals a law written on our heart. But but I think there's there's a point of separation we have to have here. We have conflated 
shame and guilt into a single concept because we sing about it and we talk about it and we use guilt and shame, guilt and shame, guilt and shame, okay? In fact, there is like a brink of almost heresy that's happening in the church where instead of Jesus Christ dying for sin, he died for guilt and shame. Uh, Zach may have talked about that last week, but that's, that's a real thing. It's a real thing where a contemporary church doesn't want to use the S word and talk about sin, and so instead they say, guilt and shame. The guilt and shame you're feeling, he died for that. No, no, no. The guilt and shame is the consequence of your sin. That's what he died for. Okay, now, we got to separate these for this to make sense in the context of what Paul's saying. Shame is, how, is the embarrassment or the humiliation that you feel knowing what someone else thinks about you. That is shame. Now, we feel shame before people in our life. If you're a married man or woman, you've probably felt shameful at one season in your spousal relationship where you said something or did something that brought a sense of shame, embarrassment, humiliation. Other people in our life, you've hurt them, you've sinned against them, you feel ashamed for that. That's good and it's normal. It's evidence of the fact that there's something there. But it's insufficient evidence. And it's insufficient because if we were simply to say what other people think about me is the measure of whether or not I've sinned, then we would fall right into the trap that the secular world is trying to create for us, which says society establishes a norm. Our conformity to that society is not sinful. Our resistance to that society is what is sinful because these are just cultural norms. And we have to be scared to death of falling into that trap that society has set that. Because if that's the case and society standard is the case, then the Spartans who threw the babies out to die were not sinful if they weren't healthy. Like, that's just, that's their culture. That's how they were refining it. So there has to be some standard beyond that. Now, there is a shame that we feel that is godly, and that is a sense that God is, we are embarrassed because God knows what we did is wrong, what we've done is wrong. We've all felt that too. If you're a Christian, you have felt the sensation that God is disappointed in you because you have sinned against him. That is shame. That's a good shame. That's healthy. Now, why does it matter that we divide shame and guilt? And here is why. The point that Paul is making here is that guilt is the internal feeling where you have transgressed your own law. This is my, one of my all-time favorite apologetic conversations. You college kids hear this. No one can refute the existence of sin, and here's how simple it is to acknowledge it. Do you believe, when somebody says, you just define sin. I don't believe it exists. I don't think there's a good and evil. There's not an absolute truth. Here is a simple response to that. Have you ever felt guilty for anything in your life that you've done? Yes. Then you do believe it exists. Because it exists inside of your heart. And your, if you believe that it's good and you didn't do it, you have transgressed your own self. And that is sufficient to point out what Paul is saying here. It's written on our hearts. The Lord has written it on our hearts. So it's insufficient to say the absence of holding the law that the Israelites had means that they're excused. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. So as we consider that and we see where we're going, we are, and I hope you see it, we are walking into a pit of despair right here. Everyone knows God exists, suppresses it, replaces it. What about people that don't know? They know, and they have the moral law written on their heart, and they excuse themselves or they convict themselves in their own conscience. Okay? So then, people just need to seek God, right? Wrong. Let's move forward just a little bit here. Move ahead to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 10. 
The next big idea is that all people are incapable of and ultimately unconcerned with self-salvation. And here's what we're going to read, starting in verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Hear that point one more time. Verse verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here we are. We're in this pit as, as a humanity and as an individual. Don't excuse yourself. Remember, don't excuse yourself. One of the things that I had to talk, when, when my kids have said to me, Dad, I think I want to get baptized. I mean, we went, a, we went a year with Seth, and here's why. I said back to Seth, why do you want to get baptized? Well, t- tell me why. Because I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I say, okay, and what does that have? And I know Jesus, I believe Jesus died for my sin. And I say, and he said Jesus died for our sins. I say, what about you? He finally said, okay, my sins too. I say, what sins? He'd be like, uh, I'm like, not yet, bud. Because we like to think about this as this theological concept and excuse ourselves from it. This is, we're talking about ourselves. I'm talking about me as I read this. You're, we're talking about you. And so here we have this, just seek God. And I'm going to tell you, oh my gosh, the whole, this, this is another infiltrating teaching and perspective and among college kids that are not part of the Overland Church Collegiate Ministry, but other college kids, our kids are theologically deep and robust and just gospel truth right on track. I say that lightheartedly, but I'm actually being really honest about that. If you were at this Theology Over Breakfast stuff, you would see like, oh my gosh, we've got like world changers sitting here in this front corner and back there in the back working the slides and the sound. But here's what I would tell you. This is, this is one of the most common things I hear when I talk to young people, particularly college kids. This is what I hear. I want to live life God's way. When we were setting up to do this Easter service with a few other churches that kind of were collaborating, the guy that was overseeing it assigned me. This is when I was doing some of the collegiate ministry stuff before Brandon took it over and made it an actual thriving ministry. And <laughs> kudos. And this guy says, would you do the interview for the testimony we're going to do at the joint Easter service? And I was like, yeah, I'll do the interviews. And he said, well, I got a guy. And he's got a great testimony. You should talk to him. It's awesome. And I think he would be really good. But you can vet it, see what you think. I said, okay, sounds good. So I meet this guy at Subway. And I'm like, so tell me your story. He's like, yeah, you know, I grew up in the church, but then got to college, really strayed from it, started drinking a lot, um, really just kind of walked away from, like, you know, what I believed. And, and then, you know, one morning I woke up, I was hungover, and I thought, man, am I going to live this life? Is this what my life's going to look like? Or am I going to live a life that God wants for me? And so I, you know, I thought about it, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to live life God's way. And so I stopped drinking. I started reading my Bible. I started getting back in church. And, man, my, my grades got better in school. My girlfriend, my relationship with my girlfriend got a whole lot better, and now my life is just on a much better course. And I was sitting there, and I went, who's exalted in this story? He was, well, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, it sounds like you had a pretty remarkable willpower to turn around your life in that state, and I'm proud of you. Like, this is awesome, good for you. I'm really glad that you're not doing all this anymore and that your life is better and your grades are better. That's, that's awesome. But it's not a testimony. 
He's like, well, okay. And I was like, if, if you're getting the glory, then God isn't. And this is a, you're getting a lot of glory. This is an awesome, awesome thing that you've done. It's not a testimony. Now, I say that to say we have this mentality that we seek for God. If we just seek God and try to live it God's way and live life God's way, we'll be fine. And I'm here to tell you, wrong, wrong. There are going to be a lot of people, Jesus says, who stand at the gates and say, Lord, done things your way. We heal the sick in your name. We preach the gospel in your name. And he's going to say, never knew you. You doer of lawlessness, never knew you. Jesus goes to great lengths to make this clear. In his own parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he says, two guys walk in, and I love this parable, and I'll say it's my favorite parable Jesus tells, and I love it, and it's because the guy walks in, he's, the Pharisee walks in, the tax collector walks in, and the Pharisee says, and please read it for yourself, and don't miss this part, Luke chapter 18, he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this man, this sinner over here. I do my tithing, I do my thing. Here's my point. We sometimes think the Pharisee walks in and says, hey, I'm not like this guy. That's not what he says. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. Now, that sounds pretty righteous to me. He's given God the credit for the fact that he's behaving in a way that's Christian, like Zach talked about last week, right? He's given God the credit. But the tax collector beats his chest and says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And that man, Jesus says, go down, goes down justified rather than the other. The person who stands before God and says, thank you, God, that I have lived righteously and have lived your way and have sought you, he's going to say, no. You're trusting what you've done. This is a powerful message for us because we tend to think there's some aspect of this that we can do, that we can set this up. So here, this begs the next, I think, natural question. What are we supposed to do? We're in a pit... We've suppressed the truth of God. We've replaced it with ultimately ourselves. Everyone is held guilty and accountable to God. And we can't even seek him to be justified. What do we do? Well, let's read on. The next big idea is that Jesus died for God and for you. We're going to go just barely forward in chapter 3 to verse 21. We're going to read 21 to 26. Here's what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a, so here we sit in the pit, and here's what we have. Jesus Christ is put forward as a propitiation. There's that word again. What that means is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Guys, never, ever, ever, ever let somebody tell you that what Jesus Christ died for is to get you out of hell. He died to spare you the wrath of God. There are three things you should always understand about the nature of your salvation. Number one, you were saved from God, not from Satan. You were saved from God. You were saved by God. He has done the work. You are saved 
for God. The purpose of your salvation is him and his glory. Okay, so not, don't ever mix up those three, and this matters right here, because if this is true, that Jesus Christ was satisfying the wrath of God, why was that necessary? Why couldn't he say, you're forgiven? Why did it have to be divine child abuse, as Richard Dawkins calls it? And here's my simple illustration. My mom's sitting here today. This is my mom in from Cincinnati. My mom is an attorney. She's a public appellate attorney in Kentucky. My mom is a genius. She doesn't want me to say all this, but I'm going to say it anyways. I'm not saying that because I'm biased. I could probably find some numbers to prove it to you. My mom is a genius. She could be a lawyer anywhere. She could do any kind of law. But she chose, even though she thought she was going to do international law, to, do, to be a public servant and serve the interests of people who are underrepresented or not well represented and live in poverty. And this is the reason why, because she believes in justice. She believes in justice, simply that there is a law and a rule, and we ought to be conformed to that, and we ought to support it and make sure justice is done and not injustice. Okay, now, can you imagine this situation? My mom takes her client, and let me tell you, she's had crazy cases. I'm not talking about, like, traffic tickets. I'm talking death penalty cases. I'm talking about national news stories that have been some of the most heinous things that you've seen. I'm not kidding you, and argued all the way to the Supreme Court. And here's what I'm telling you. She, can you imagine this defense? Judge, he messed up. He messed up. He feels sorry about it. He wished he didn't do it. If you really care about him, you'll just forgive him. That would be the worst defense ever. <laughs> and yet, every one of us stands and looks at God and says, if he's really loving, he just forgives. Well, then he's unjust. It's unjust. He would be unjust to just forgive. Do you want to trust a God that just forgives and says, it's fine, I love you? Is that God holy? Is that God righteous? Is that God worthy of honor and thanks and praise and glory? No. No. We would say, shame. Right? But for some reason, we would hold our judge at Larimer County Circuit Court circuit clerk's office to a different standard than we would hold God of the universe to, where we think if he's really loving, then he saves people. So what does God do? Well, he puts Jesus Christ on the cross for his justice sake, punishment delivered for those who believe. No one escaped punishment. It was just transferred by substitutionary atonement to Jesus Christ. Punishment delivered. I am now just. David was saved by Jesus Christ. Moses was saved by Jesus Christ. Josiah was saved by Jesus Christ. Name anybody you want before he ever perished, saved by Jesus Christ. Why does it say this? Because it says in his divine forbearance, those of you like me for a season that had your student loans, remember what forbearance meant. You can pay them later. And I remember being like, thank you. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so to people looking on, they're saying, David, went, David could go to heaven but he's a sinner. David killed somebody. And this is why it made God just and for those who believe the justifier of the believer. This was to make God righteous and give us a provision for salvation. Now, some people would say, how is this fair? And let me just tell this very quick illustration of how this works. There's a king who has a kingdom 
and then his guards come to this king, and it's this pleasant kingdom, and it's beautiful. And they come and say, King, somebody's robbing your kingdom. And he says, Are you serious? Bring him to me. I'll punish him. So we haven't caught him yet. Well, you get him to me, and I'm going to punish him. They say, Okay. A week goes by, they come back. King, we haven't been able to find this thief. We're looking hard, and they keep pillaging this place, and we can't get it figured out, but they're still robbing people. And he says, Are you kidding me? Find them and bring them back. I'm going to give them 15 lashes. They say, okay, they come back a week later. We still haven't found this thief, and they are robbing everybody. Like, they're up in the number of robberies. And he says, get them to me next week, and I'm going to give them 30 lashes. And they're like, oh, my gosh, 30 lashes. That's, that sounds like a lot. A week later, King, we, we've looked everywhere. This thief is very evasive. He says, you find that thief, and you bring him to me, and I'm going to give him 50 lashes. The guards look at each other and say, 50 lashes? Can't do that. That'll kill him. He says, well, that's what I said, and that's what I'm going to do. Week goes by, the guards show back up. He's, they say, we, we, we found the thief. He said, you did, great. They said, yeah, yeah, but we need, to, we need to talk about this. He's like, no, 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 bring the thief in here. They're getting their 50 lashes. They say, well, the thing is, he's like, I don't bring the thief in. The crowds amass, the crowds part, and there are the guards with the thief, and it's the king's mother, his elderly mother, and the king looks. They say, King, this is your thief. He says, Okay. And so the question begins, and the mumbling begins What's he going to do? Is he going to be loving? Is he going to be just? They bring the mother in. He says, Tired of the post. They tired of the whipping post. The guard gets ready. He says, Deliver the lashes. Guard draws back. The king says, Stop. Takes off his robe. He walks down from his throne. He wraps his arms around his mother. He says, deliver the lashes. And he takes the lashes, and the punishment's delivered, and the king dies. Now, this is every analogy or illustration will fall short of what Jesus Christ went through on your behalf. But this is a picture of how justice was served, and the king was just, and he took the punishment. How do we get this? How are we to receive this? How does it apply to us? What do we have to do? This is the next question that Paul anticipates. What do we do? We live by what laws. What, what's the expectation here, God? And he's going to answer that question. So move forward with me to the last point, which is, by faith, not works, we receive grace and are counted righteous in Christ Jesus. We're going to go to chapter 4, and we're going to break this up. This is a little bit odd. I've pieced this together, skipping around a tiny bit, so bear with me. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. For if it is the adherents of the law who ought to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God and the one whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You were called to exist as a Christian, as a offspring of Abraham. Paul's going to break this down later in Romans chapter 9, but the point that he is making here is it's not by works that people are by, 
being lineage of Abraham, following the law, the Ten Commandments that made someone a child of Abraham. Don't you see? He's saying Abraham was declared righteous. He was counted righteous because of his faith. And therefore, we become Abraham's offspring by faith. We are counted righteous. This is how this is received. Keep reading. Jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Jump down one step further to chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So here's how this works. This is the, to- this is the picture. Suppress the truth of God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have, even absent the law, the moral truth written in our hearts that we contradict. So we stand in judgment. God, in order to remain just and worthy, puts Jesus Christ on the tree to pay the penalty that is due the sinner. And it is applied to every person who believes in him. How is it to be received? It is to be received by faith. By faith. A few weeks ago, I was listening to an R.C. Sproul sermon, and he simply said, there's no such thing as the Christian who has not felt unworthy of their salvation. I think that matters. I think it matters. I think that the Christian cannot feel a sense of if God loves me, he will save me, but should feel a sense of, I ought not be saved. You know, I've spent a lot of time, I feel like, with my own kids and in my own heart, remembering that what God ought to do is to have sent me to hell. The moment I sinned, which is probably pretty early, ought to have, he could have, and been perfectly just and righteous, and yet I know who he is. Why? What did I do? Some of you have heard this story. Really quick, I remember the moment this hit me. I was laying in bed watching a stu- I may have said this in a sermon, I don't remember, watching a stupid Bruce Willis movie called like Desert in the Sun. I don't even know what it is. And I'm laying there and I'm with Brooke and we're watching this movie and he's like this guy who's a military guy who's rescuing this like Catholic missions group out of this country and they have to walk from one side of this country to another and on the way they stop by this little tiny people group in this little village and they, in this village, ends up getting ravaged by the bad guys and they move on. But during this scene, I'm sitting there and it hit me been born in some little village in the middle of nowhere and I felt this weight of why do I even know why did I get born where I did why did my parents take me to church why did I have access to the Bible my whole life what's going I didn't do anything I didn't do anything and I was consumed with this reality I think that is a in some degree in some measure a necessary quality for the Christian to recognize their unworthiness to be saved Now, why does that matter so much right now? Because I don't believe that living in a new way of life is possible unless you feel like you ought not even have the opportunity. Believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you cannot save yourself, that you are stuck in this pit we described in those first few chapters, and that salvation is impossible without faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that truth and trusting him to be saved and not what you're doing and not all the 
great things you're doing in your life, like coming to church or tithing at the church or serving the poor or whatever. None of those things, none of those things contribute to your salvation. That is a new way of life provoked by the Holy Spirit because of the thing that puts you in the middle of the road, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what promotes a new way of life. That, that wrestling with the depth of that truth in your own heart and humility is what causes people to do things like serve the poor. It's what causes people to do things like talk to the other person in the cubicle next to them about Jesus Christ uncomfortably in the cul-de-sac. It's what causes people to move across the state to plant a church in a different community. It's what causes people to move across the country and plant churches in other parts of the world in the 1040 window where people are dying every day. It's what causes people to go and die. A new way of life is a life willing to die for the gospel. That is impossible if you start in Romans 6, chapter 1 and say, well, I mean, if I'm believing in Jesus, I better start living differently. No, no. Hit the floor with the reality of your salvation. See what the Lord has done for you. Believe on it. Trust it that in Christ you will have glory and that now your life can be spent saying, Lord, what can I do? There's a simple expression you've probably heard that captures this idea that will promote a new way of life. It's called being a debtor to grace. Some people don't like that expression. Some people say, well, if you're a debtor to grace, then it sounds like you're nullifying grace. Now you've got to do something. No, no, that's the reason it's debtor to grace. It's written in that order on purpose. Grace is first, and you become a debtor to it, which is, you have done this for me, Lord. Now what do I do? Have, here's my life, Lord. Right? And so we're going to sing a song here, and the musicians can come back up. We're going to sing a song that will be familiar for you, Come Thou Fount. We're singing it on purpose. I literally called Josh yesterday and said, hey, I know it's short notice. Can you change songs for church? He's like, yeah, no problem, um, which is pretty awesome to have that opportunity. And here's what the last verse says. I just want you to hear it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these are heavy truths and and a lot of them, and sometimes it feels like even too many of them for 40 minutes. God, but I just pray that we would be a church that would dive into your word and to come to wrestle with these deep truths to see our salvation in a, an appropriate, a biblical light, Lord, that we're saved from you and by you and for you, God. I, I pray that as we move into this next season as a church and as our church grows, God, that we would not merely grow in number, but we would grow in depth. We would grow in relationship with you, God, as you've revealed yourself, and not in other ways. And Lord, I, I pray most of all that we would have a church full of people who have their newness of life rooted, rooted deeply in the gospel, which is only amazing, incredible, good news because of the reality of the bad news. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of our life, and we just ask that you would, by your Spirit, provoke us, provoke us to be people that live entirely for it. In Christ's name, amen.